Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome back. We hope you guys enjoyed our anniversary episode. Um, We enjoyed recording our anniversary episode since we were in person. Um, So if you guys have not listened to that one yet, definitely go do that because it was a super fun time. And sorry, the audio is not the best because we don't... Yeah. It's kind of difficult. Kind of crappy audio, but it wasn't horrible. Like, I've definitely heard worse. Yes. But it's not like unlistenable, but... Is that a word? It is now. (laughs) Okay, perfect. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, so as you guys know, Courtney and I spent last weekend together, which at the time you're hearing this was like a month ago, but we (laughs) had a fantastic time, and hopefully you guys have been able to find some bright spots in the world this year so far. Have you seen that meme that's like uh, going around, it's like, I'm keeping track this year? And it has, like, a calendar, and each month they're putting, like, the big thing that happens. No, I haven't so, seen So, like, that. January was, like, the cap. They put a picture of, like, the capital, uh-huh. like, raid or whatever. Then for February, they put the Gorilla Glue Girl. <laughs> so, we'll see what March is. But, yeah, they were like, I'm keeping track this year. And it was, like, to fill in all the holes to be, like, what's going to happen this That's year. That's funny. Yeah, we'll definitely have to see what March brings because... Who knows? You never know. I really hope that March brings warmer weather. That's what I hope. I want snow. Because basically the whole nation got snow and Knoxville was like, nope, you do do. None for you. Like, we don't do that But also, the people in Texas, if you live in Texas, my heart is out for you. Thankfully, I'm not there because that's a horrible situation. Um, And hopefully everyone is okay and all our listeners are good. Um, But yeah. Yeah, it is really so sad what's going on there. And all speaking of crimes, all of the price gouging with the electric companies, like yeah. people saying that if they used the normal amount of electricity that they would use in a month, that this company was going to charge them like $15,000 for electric for that month. And just so disgusting. So hopefully they will get some help soon. Yeah, because... Um, if you know, if you've listened for a while, I'm a Nashville Predators fan, and they were supposed to play Dallas in Dallas, and literally the mayor had to step in to be like, you guys don't need to play this because we're literally like not giving electricity to people to try and conserve electricity, and then you're about to play yeah. a hockey game. And so, wow. yeah, so the NHL was just like, oh, we'll keep going, and the mayor was like, please don't do this. Yeah, Which, he's like, the no. Dallas GM and manager should have stepped in before that, but. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, speaking of other crappy news, so and some uh, true crime updates. So I'm sure we all remember Kyle Rittenhouse, um, who shot into a crowd of Black Lives Matter protesters back in August. He's a piece of shit. Yeah, he drove across state lines. Yeah. You know, he was not defending his home. He went into an area he knew protest would be. <laughs> yes, like he sought out these protesters. He didn't like shoot someone on his property like he was in a different state yeah anyway so he was arrested um out on bond and early february police or the courts had sent him something and it was returned to them because he no longer lived at that address which if you were out on bond you have to have your address current so they arrived at the house on february 2nd where they found a man living there who had been living there since mid-december so Kyle Rittenhouse had just moved out and not told anybody for months. And so the prosecutors petitioned for a new arrest warrant, um, but as of February 11th, that was denied. So nobody gives a shit that they don't know where this guy is. They are in contact with his attorney, 
who says that he is in a safe location because he received so many, quote, death threats that they had to put him there and they're not going to reveal that location for his safety. Um, but I don't know what death threats you're getting because you have plenty of supporters, so not really sure how that works. Yeah, I'm not really sure, too, because, I mean, you can give the court your new address and keep it confidential. Like, there's a system yeah. for that also for, like, domestic violence victims because, yes. you know, especially so many records in Tennessee, especially, are just public. So you can just look anything up and you can see people's address, all that. So they do have, like, a system in place where you can put, like, a fake address so that your attacker can't look it up on the public access and be like, okay, here you are. I'm going to find you. So there's, mm -hmm. there's options here. <laughs> so, yeah, but you kind of need the uh, prosecutors to know where you are yeah. possibly might be helpful. Yeah. So just our, our latest uh, update on white supremacy in the United States corner. So that's fun. And speaking of white toxicity, um, we're gonna, we have an update on Gary Ridgway, um, which I did not expect. So this article basically came out between us recording part two and part three, um, which at that point, I think we were both mentally done and did not expect an update in a 30 year old yes. case. So not at all. <laughs> um, yeah, late January, another one of his victims had officially been identified. Her name was Wendy Stevens. She was one of the four victims who were unidentified when Ridgway pled guilty in 2003, so there won't be, like, another trial or anything like they did with uh, mm -hmm. Rebecca Marrow. But they did see that she was only 14 years old when she ran away from Denver, Colorado, and this officially makes her Ridgway's youngest victim. Mm-hmm. And her remains were discovered in 1984 at the baseball field. I think we talked about that. Uh, there were so many yep. victims' remains. It's hard to keep up. Uh, and they were able to identify her through, like, emerging DNA and genealogical technologies. So kind of through the family tree. So hopefully the other identifi unidentified victims, they'll be able to identify them as well. And maybe we'll have more updates coming forward. But it is important to give her a name and remember her name because her life was taken at only 14, which is so young, from this monster. Yeah, and that is just so sad. And it's so sad that it took so long for her family to get that kind of closure. But, I mean, this is a positive-ish update because... Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you always want to be able to identify these victims. So while it is sad, it's good that at least her family can know for sure after so many years. And I'm very glad they're not just like, okay, well, he's in jail. Like, he pled guilty to a Jane Doe. Like, it's fine. Like, they're still actively trying to find victims, identify victims, yes. like, and just give this closure. Because even if it's been 30 years, like, her family has just been wondering. Yeah. So, um... I'm really, really happy they're doing that and making sure to give these victims their names back. Yes, absolutely. I agree. So today we're going to talk about a really interesting case that has had a lot of long-term ramifications for the country. So I hope you guys find it interesting. Um, always super sad, but something that did have long-lasting effects that we all know today. So today we're going to talk about the Chicago Tylenol poisonings. Um, and our information came from a couple of Washington Post articles, a Chicago Magazine article, AP News, Pact.com, and ABC News, and PBS.org. So we're going to start with just a little bit of background of Tylenol. Don't skip, guys. It's really interesting, I promise. So And short. It's not yes. that long. <laughs> exactly. 
So Tylenol was a trademarked brand of acetaminophen in 1955 by McNeil Laboratories, Inc., which is now part of Johnson & Johnson. Um, so Tylenol was an aspirin-free pain reliever and fever reducer. So before 1975, it had really limited sales because it was advertised mostly to physicians like a prescription drug. So the Johnson & Johnson company changed tactics and started an aggressive campaign of selling Tylenol to the public by claiming it relieved pain without causing any of the side effects caused by aspirin. Um, and so they really emphasized its like mildness as a drug. But when sales lagged, Johnson & Johnson decided to take a new path and they increased the content of each tablet to 500 milligrams against the standard aspirin's 325 milligrams. And now they stress the product's extra strength. And this is what made the sales take off quickly. That's pretty interesting. So the article we found was written in 1982 and estimated that Tylenol sales were at $300 million a year, which would be about $800 million today. And their market was believed to be more than three times that of other leading products like Bayer Aspirin and Excedrin. Um, however, a three-day scare in Chicago in 1982 involving Tylenol threatened this product immensely. So 12-year-old Mary Kellerman woke up in her home in the suburbs of Chicago on September 29, 1982, and complained of a sore throat and a runny nose. Her parents gave her one extra-strength Tylenol, and a few minutes later, Mary went into the bathroom and her parents heard something hit the floor. So her father called for her at the door and asked if she was okay, and when she didn't respond, he opened the door and found her unconscious on the floor. She was immediately taken to the hospital and pronounced dead at 9.56 a.m., Obviously, an autopsy was ordered because of her age and having no prior health conditions, um, but the investigation did begin with interviewing the parents because they're like, this 12-year-old girl just collapsed and died on the floor. Like, something is wrong here. Like, what is happening? So nearby, 27-year-old postal worker Adam Janis called in sick to work because he felt like he was getting a cold. So around noon, he picked up his kids from preschool and stopped on the way home to pick up some Tylenol. Um, after eating lunch, he took two of the Tylenol and went in his room to lie down. A few minutes later, he staggered into the kitchen and collapsed. Family members took him to the hospital, where he was pronounced dead at 3.15 p.m. Um, the medical director, Dr. Thomas Kim, said that they were unable to resuscitate him and initially ruled his death as sudden cardiac arrest. And in the article I did find, um, Dr. Kim was saying that for a man of his age, for them to like not even be able to resuscitate him was really odd um even with you know a cardiac arrest that they can like bring the heart back like you may be brain dead and you may still die but for them to just like not be able to get your heartbeat back at all was really unusual for his age and condition mm -hmm. then at 3:45 p.m 27 year old mary lynn reiner took some tylenol for pain because she had just given birth to her fourth child the week before her husband came home and found her collapsed on the floor, so he called for an ambulance. So then around 5 p.m., Adam Janice's family had gathered at his house to mourn. So his 25-year-old brother Stanley and 19-year-old sister-in-law Teresa both took some Tylenol because they had headaches that were just brought on by the grief and just the chaos of this day. So after taking the Tylenol, they both collapsed and an ambulance was called. So Stanley was pronounced dead later that day, um, and Teresa would die two days later. So upon Stanley's death, public health employee Nurse Jensen received a phone call from Chuck Kramer with the Arlington Heights Fire Department, and he said that they needed someone from public health because they now had two suspicious sudden deaths in the same household and a third possible death soon. So Dr. Kim instructed them to look for signs of carbon monoxide poisoning or food poisoning and to bring in anything that was suspicious looking from any food or medication in the Janus home. So at this point, they're like, 
we have no idea what we're working with. We just know that three young, healthy people suddenly collapsed. Two are dead. One is probably not going to make it. Like, there has to be something going on in this household. And it's so weird, too, because if this if they hadn't taken that Tylenol, like, I wonder if they would have even ever connected all these deaths. Yes. Because this was really just, like, the connector of, like, something's weird. Yeah, that was my thought, too, because as we'll get into later, you know, there are certain things that you don't typically test for, but then all of a sudden you have three people in the same household and you're like, okay, something something's off here. So yeah, if it hadn't happened this way, would they have even known at all or this quickly that mm-hmm. it was something linked to the Tylenol? So at 6.30 p.m., again, this is all the same day, 31-year-old Mary McFarland, again, this is very weird, guys, that we have three Marys dying the same day from this. Like, Yeah, that is weird. So weird. So a 31-year-old Mary McFarland was working her shift at an Illinois Bell store, which I guess was like a phone store, when she told a co-worker that she had a headache and went into the back room to take some Tylenol. And he found her unconscious on the floor just a few minutes later. So investigators and the public health nurse, Nurse Jensen, went to the Janus home that evening to search for potential causes of the three sudden illnesses and two deaths in the same household. So they did spend time searching the basement because the family had recently done some metalworking down there and they were concerned that cyanide might have been used for polishing, which was common at the time. Um, Then Nurse Jensen noticed an open bottle of Tylenol that had six capsules missing, so she took them back to the hospital with her. Um, Because remember, he said to just bring back any suspicious food or drugs, so she's like, okay, it looks like somebody has taken this recently, like, why not? Just let me grab it. Mm Mm-hmm. So around 9.30 that evening, 35-year-old flight attendant Paula Prince from Omaha, Nebraska stopped at Walgreens to buy some Tylenol after landing at O'Hare Airport during her last flight of the evening. Back at the hospital where the Janus brothers had died and Teresa Janus was currently fighting for her life, Nurse Jensen told the doctors and investigators that she believed the Tylenol was the cause of some kind of poisoning. Um, But everyone else was really skeptical because nothing seemed to be off about the Tylenol. Like, they looked at it, they smelled it, they're like... This looks completely normal. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So the only poisoning that Dr. Kim could think of that could kill so quickly was cyanide. So he's like, okay, we'll test for this um, because the deaths did happen so suddenly where like they were completely fine and then all of a sudden they're dead. So that's why he decided to test for cyanide specifically. Um, so he did have blood samples from the three members of the Janus family sent off to be tested. And two firemen who were aware of the deaths of both Mary Kellerman and Adam Janus noticed that it had been documented in both individuals' files that they had taken Tylenol prior to their deaths. Um, So they notified Dr. Kim. Again, something that, what are the chances of two firemen just happening to notice, oh, hey, both people took Tylenol, let me report this. Yeah. So Dr. Kim asked police to have the Tylenol from both Mary's house and Janice's house tested for cyanide. So Nick Pichos was the investigator with Cook County's medical examiner's office, and he was tasked with examining both bottles of Tylenol. So he did notice that the control number for both bottles was the same, so he reported this to the medical examiner. So when Pichos was examining both of the bottles, at first he didn't find anything out of the ordinary, but on a second look, he smelled a faint smell of bitter almonds. Um, So for about 50% of the population, cyanide has an odor similar to almonds, but for the other half, it's completely odorless. So again, this is just another piece of this case that, like, if this had not happened, would everything have fallen into place so quickly? Uh, Because he happened to be one of half of people that can actually smell cyanide. 
So around 1 a.m. the following day, Dr. Kim got the blood test back um, that proved that the three known victims at this point all had lethal levels of cyanide in their bodies. So cyanide is a chemical asphyxiant that blocks the utilization of oxygen by red blood cells, so it very quickly causes brain damage and cardiac arrest. So at 3.15 a.m., Marilyn McFarland was pronounced dead, and at 9.30 a.m., Mary Reiner was pronounced dead. So their deaths were connected to the cyanide-laced Tylenol at this point. And shortly after 10 a.m., the medical examiner held a press conference to warn the public that cyanide had been found in Tylenol and that everyone should avoid taking it for now. Um, so she also had police drive around neighborhoods with loudspeakers announcing that individuals should avoid taking Tylenol. Like, she's like, make sure that we get this messaging out there somehow. Which must be, like, so, like, creepy to see. Like, if you just imagine, like, sitting in your house and there's, like... Yeah. You know, a police car with its, like, thing being, like, do not take Tylenol. It's, like... Yeah. Oh, but why? <laughs> like Right? You're, like, okay, what, what happened? I don't know. This is odd. <laughs> so, at 3 p.m., Johnson & Johnson, which, like we said, was the parent company for Tylenol, announced a recall for all Tylenol with the same control number as the two bottles. Um, so then the medical examiner started receiving phone calls, obviously, from people who had taken Tylenol and were worried. And his response was basically, if you're able to call me, don't worry, you're fine. Just don't take any more. Yeah. It's like, this happens so quickly that if you've already taken it and you have time to call me about it, then you're going to be okay. So state police, local law enforcement, and the attorney general's office gathered on October 1st to discuss this unprecedented incident and where to go from here. And at 1.15 p.m. that day, Teresa Janis was taken off of life support and pronounced dead. That evening, flight attendant Paula Prince, who we talked about earlier, was supposed to meet her sister for dinner, but she wasn't answering the phone. Um, her sister then learned that she had been a no-show for her last flight, so she called the police and asked for a welfare check. So at 5 p.m. that day, police found Paula's body inside her apartment, and the Tylenol bottle was still open on the bathroom counter, and she was only a few steps away. Again, just showing how quickly this cyanide poisoning kills you. So that evening, the mayor and law enforcement held another press conference, and this time they announced that they were removing all Tylenol from the shelves across Chicago. And the Chicago City Council passed an ordinance on October 4th that required tamper-resistant packaging for all drugs sold in stores. And the following day, Johnson & Johnson recalled Tylenol nationwide, which was 31 million bottles and worth more than $100 million. So, obviously, like, they had to do this, but it's kind of crazy that they were willing to do it so quickly, which mm -hmm. shouldn't be surprising because that's what you should do. Yeah. Um, but for companies, and especially huge companies like this, for them to take the measures to, like, recall their entire product nationwide after only a few cases, like... Yeah. At this point, they're doing pretty good. <laughs> Somebody there knew, like, this is going to be a worse PR nightmare if we let this keep happening. If yes. It's something, like, nationwide. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like, they, they were for sure thinking long-term of, like, okay, let's lose this out now because if it's worse and if we don't do anything about it, like, this is going to tarnish our reputation forever and kill many people. So investigators are certain at this point that the cyanide was intentionally added to the Tylenol, but their initial efforts were focused on protecting the public and making sure the information was widely shared and so that all the Tylenol was removed from the shelves before they started really investigating who could have done this. So they're like, okay, we need to put all of our efforts into just making sure this doesn't happen again before we start investigating who did this and why. Because it definitely would be harder then than now because, I mean, now it's like, 
email and phone, you know, all this stuff. But, like, if you just have, like, in 1982, this little gas station in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, that you're, like, trying to find out. Like, I need to get your Tylenol off your shelves. Like, Yeah. (laughs) So, I'm sure it was, like, a hard thing to do and very, very time-consuming and very elaborate. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI also became involved at this point. Um, And they received 1,200 leads in the first few days, including many false confessions, as you always have with these high-profile cases. Um, And the FDA tested more than 1 million capsules nationwide, and they did not find any pills laced with cyanide outside of Chicago. Um, They did find additional poison capsules on store shelves in Chicago that they found before they were purchased, which is good. Um, But again, this is, you know, clearly just happening in Chicago. So Johnson & Johnson did offer replacement capsules to individuals who turned in previously bought bottles of Tylenol, and they also offered a reward for anyone with information that led to the arrest of this perpetrator. So like always happens, copycat incidents then started happening all over the country. Um, So there were 270 reports of product tampering in the following month, and at least 36 of those were found to be valid reports, And food also began being tampered with at this time. Yeah, so Johnson & Johnson then started working closely with the FDA, and they introduced the tamper-proof packing, which includes the foil seals and other features that made it obvious if a product was tampered with. So today, I mean, it's just a standard practice that when you open, you know, your leave, you got to get your finger and stab that foil to try and get your medicine real quick. (laughs) Um, Yep. But, like, before that, it wasn't a thing. Um... And this soon, obviously, became the standard for all over-the-counter medications. And they also had a new version of their pills called the Caplet. And it was a tablet coated with silk, easy-to-swallow gelatin, but it was harder to tamper with than the older tablets um, that could, you know, easily be opened, tampered with, and then placed back in the old bottle. Prior to 1982, medication and food containers were easily opened with no tamper-proof seals to prevent someone from accessing the food and medication while it was still on the shelf at the store. So this incident made the public aware of all items in stores that could just easily be tampered with. So then it became a standard for all medication and food containers to have tamper-proof seals. Yeah, like this really started just like a nationwide panic of they're like, this could happen to literally anything, like everything that I purchased. Yeah. Like yogurt, I just open the lid and there's the yogurt like there's not like a seal there or anything and they're just like yeah they mentioned like orange juice a lot too you know that you could just slip something in there and then go on with your day so within a year and an investment of more than a hundred million dollars tylenol sales rebounded to its healthy past and it became again the nation's favorite over-the-counter pain reliever which is insane to me because it didn't really become like a public thing until 1975 Then, you know, 1982, you have all these people, you know, dying from cyanide poisoning, getting recalled. And then within a year, you're just back and selling like normal. (laughs) That is crazy. So the Tylenol bill was passed by Congress in 1983, making it a federal offense to tamper with consumer products. So I was thinking, do you remember that phase that kids went through where they were, like, spitting in food and, like, licking the yeah. ice cream containers and, like, putting Nair and, like, hair products? Yep. Guess they could have been charged federally. Yeah. So. I guess lucky for them they weren't, but definitely could have happened. Yeah, because gross. Um, also, kids, like, that's not really, like, a fun prank. Maybe no. just don't do it. Just don't. Don't do that. <laughs> the FDA also established federal guidelines to make all products tamper-proof. 
So the accepted theory became that a madman was pulling Tylenol off the shelves, tampering with them, and putting them back. Um, and because pills were sent from the manufacturing plants to all over the country, it was widely believed that the tampering had to have happened in the stores themselves, since the cyanide lace pills were only found in Chicago during a short window of time. So it wasn't really found anywhere else any other time. Yeah, so it doesn't make sense that it could have really happened in a manufacturing plant because it's not like you manufacture everything for like one location and send it out and then another location and yeah. send it out. Like it all happens at once. So if it was happening in the plant, you would expect to see it all over. Yeah. And they did uh, make a suspect profile and they believed it was a man in his 20s, a loner with some knowledge of science but was not very successful in life. Um, they say he may have done it for attention, a vendetta against Johnson & Johnson, or targeted one of the victims and had to kill others to get to them. And another possible theory was that the perpetrator was someone with a stake in tamper-proof technology that wanted to ensure it became widely used, <laughs> which is fucked up. <laughs> which is, like, super, I mean, it's super out there, but in any case like this, you're going to have a lot of theories, and it's like, well, I mean, it, I guess it is possible. They're like, look, I created or I invested in this product and I want it to be used so let me make sure that it gets put into place really quickly because it wouldn't have you been know what? put into place so quickly if it wasn't for this. People don't surprise me anymore and honestly no. I could see some like crazy ass person doing that. For sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> so a 140 person task force worked on a hotline dedicated to gathering information about these murders and they started with around 200,000 suspects and were able to get down to about 20 by the end of 1982. So I guess a lot of these leads were just horrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and many people believe these murders would have been more easily solved today due to the prevalence of security cameras and records of electronic transactions that didn't exist in the 80s. Definitely would be a completely different case if it was today. Yeah. And the investigation was also incredibly different, difficult because they just couldn't find any apparent motive. Like, they don't really know why this person did this. Yeah, it's hard to, like, know where to start when you're like, we don't know why these people were targeted or why anyone was targeted. What, what is the reason here? Where do we start with this investigation? And especially, like you said, because there's not video cameras, there are not electronic receipts and all of these things that would make it easier to kind of investigate that today it's just like i don't we don't know we have no idea yeah one of the first suspects was 49 year old chemist roger arnold and he was a dock hand at a jewel foods warehouse in chicago jewel foods was one of the grocery chains where the tainted bottles of tylenol were found and at his home police found a book on how to kill people and five unregistered guns not a great look. Suspicious. And he admitted he admitted that he had access to cyanide before, but had gotten rid of it months earlier. And his wife said a few months before she before she had gotten sick and thrown up after taking some Tylenol. But again, you'd be dead if it was cyanide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, maybe he tested it out on her. Like, how sick do you get? <laughs> Let's, see. Let's see. Can I use this or do I need to go to the big gun? What kind of dose do I need here? Maybe I didn't put enough in, but I feel like with cyanide, it's a very, very small amount that you need to kill you. Yeah. So. Yeah. I can imagine being like, I want to make people sick. And then it's like, eh, let's just go straight to cyanide. <laughs> <laughs> and again, like we said with, if the Janus family hadn't all died so suddenly and it became clear that there was some like external factor this could, could have gone on for a long time because anytime you're taking tylenol something's probably wrong with you mm -hmm. so it's like could you know if you like 12 year old mary that suddenly died of 
a sore throat, they're like, oh, is this some kind of viral infection? Is this, you know, there's all these other factors because clearly you were already sick in the first place before you took the Tylenol. Yeah. And he received a lot of publicity from the media because this was just the first name to be released in this high profile case. But after an extensive investigation by police, he was cleared. And six months later, he killed the man he believed that had turned him into police, but he actually killed the wrong man. (laughs) So... Not a great look. He was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison. And many believe the actual perpetrator was a man named James Lewis. And this name comes up a lot if you do research with this. People love to talk about Mm -hmm. this guy. So he claimed to be the Tylenol killer and wrote to Johnson & Johnson demanding a ransom of $1 million in exchange for stopping the poisonings. The letter was postmarked from New York, but he included a bank account number for them to wire the money to, and this was a Chicago-based bank. So this led them to a tax consultant named Robert Richardson, but it was just an alias for James Lewis. (laughs) So, same guy. (laughs) Uh, And he attempted suicide by overdosing on aspirin at 20 years old, and he was wanted for credit card credit card fraud in Kansas City and had previously been indicted for murder after police found the remains of his former client in bags in his attic, but it was an illegal search, so the whole case had to be dismissed because they couldn't use this evidence in court. Okay, I understand that there have to be rules in place for legal search and seizure, but this man's body was in his attic. Like, it just blows my mind that that was the end of that. It really is so crazy how you can literally have a person, like, red-handed. But if you fuck up the police stuff, like, well, too bad. Because a jury will never hear that and will never find them guilty. (laughs) So. Goodness. um, He did flee to Kansas City with his wife in December of 1981 because of the credit card fraud charges. And they ended up in Chicago where they changed their names. So this led to kind of a cat and mouse game with investigators, but ultimately it was determined that Lewis and his wife had moved to New York the month before the murders and had no links to the Chicago events. Which also, like, if you really did do it, are you really going to write for ransom? (laughs) Right. They're just going to arrest you. (laughs) Um, He did admit to writing the letter and attempt to extort money from Johnson & Johnson, but had has always denied that he was actually responsible for the Tylenol murders. However, in an interview, he was asked how he would have done it, and he gave a very detailed answer. Which is interesting. <laughs> this guy's just kind of weird in general, though. Like, yeah. he seemed... I mean, you had your client in bags in your attic, so I'm sure you imagine killing people quite often. Probably. <laughs> also, it's like, how did you do it? Well, I went in the store, I pulled the Tylenol, <laughs> I put cyanide in it, I put it back. <laughs> I left the store. <laughs> Went to the next it's door. It's me. I'm the Tylenol killer. <laughs> um, he was charged with extortion and that previous credit card fraud, and he was sentenced to 20 years, and he was released after serving 13 years. So they had interviewed him multiple times throughout prison, but they still had no, like, for sure evidence that he was involved. He never admitted it. They even, like, interviewed him, like, without an attorney present, like, everything they could to try and, like, get him to confess, and he didn't. The FBI created a DNA profile from the capsules and raided Lewis's house in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2009, which officially reactivated the case. Um, DNA and fingerprint samples were taken from Lewis and his wife, but nothing ever came from this. 
So there are a few other people they kind of throw out who could have been. Um, there was a suspect named Lori Dan, um, and she shot several children at an elementary school in Winnetka six years after the Tylenol scare. I don't know if it's just because she went and murdered someone. They were like, she did it. I can't find anything Maybe else on Maybe she had her. something to do with this. <laughs> and then people love to blame Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Um, but most agree it just doesn't fit his crime pattern. doesn't really fit mm-hmm. what he does. So another interesting theory has emerged in the past few years, and it is widely backed by one of the victim's daughters. So Michelle Rosen is the daughter of Mary Reiner, and she's the one who took the Tylenol um, after giving birth to her fourth child. And she suggests that the theory shouldn't be that it's a madman loose on the streets, but someone within Johnson & Johnson. And she actually pushed a Kickstarter campaign to make a documentary that would request the FBI to close the case and release the sealed documents. I don't know if you guys know what Kickstarter is, but it's kind of like GoFundMe meets Patreon. Mm-hmm. That's the best way I can describe it. Like you pledge money towards a goal and you receive perks based on your pledge amount. Um, but you're basically just trying to get something funded. Anyone's a fan of Veronica Mars. That's actually how they made the movie <laughs> because fans just funded the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she did have a goal of 75000 but she did not meet it in the time she set. And it would have been named What Really Happened? Um, She said this is her life's work and this isn't going to stop her, that she didn't raise the money and she still wants to investigate and maybe get a documentary out. So Rosen's theory is that Johnson & Johnson were sent the recalled bottles but only tested about 1% of them and her viewpoint on the case changed after Lewis's house was raided in 2009 and the case was reactivated. So this is when she believes the whole like madman theory was just a complete lie and... She was trying to gather up different articles and reports, but because the case was reactivated, the FBI could seal all the documents like regarding the Mm -hmm. case. And she thought this was a little suspicious. She was like, oh, like you can reactivate the case just by raiding this guy's home. So she thinks it was just kind of bullshit. They just raided his home to reopen it. And then in 2011, a former Johnson & Johnson employee, Scott Bartz, wrote a book titled The Tylenol Mafia, Marketing, Murder, and Johnson & Johnson. And in this book, he says the real culprit was a Johnson & Johnson employee in the repackaging or distribution center. So they did, you know, manufacture them and they would send them to distribution centers. So not entirely impossible, like, Mm -hmm. because, you know, it is Chicago. So there's probably a distribution center in Chicago you could tamper with. Yeah. And Bartz wrote, not one bit of evidence ever supported the store shelf theory, except for the fact that people bought Tylenol and they died. But again, there's really no evidence either way. So, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Arthur Allen Bryce wrote a play based off this belief. And in describing his work, he said, what followed was a nationwide panic that altered consumer confidence forever. It stopped in its tracks, but it's more than that. I discovered a story of evil, corporate villainy, human stupidity, and human dignity that took my breath away. So, all right, dude. Well, (laughs) Um, it was later argued in a family lawsuit against Johnson & Johnson that Mary Reiner purchased her Tylenol from an enclosed pharmacy, which would point to the theory that the pills would be poisoned while in the distribution center. We couldn't find exactly what an enclosed pharmacy is, but if I had to jump to assumptions, I'm assuming you might have to just go up and like get it from, you know, the pharmacist or something like that, where they just keep everything, you know, behind glass or something like that. Yeah, that was my guess, which like, 
Also, I don't think that necessarily means that it had to have been done in the distribution center because one, it could have been an employee at this pharmacy like that, you know, happened to maybe they did it there. Then they were like, oh, well, I can't do it all here. Let me go to other stores if you were the person that did this or because the laws at this point were so flexible around like medication. I'm sure you could easily like purchase and return this and it would just be put right back on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So that could be a possibility That's as well. That's what I was thinking too is it's like you go buy it, tamper with it and be like, oh, actually I need to return this. Like, And it's like if they counted the number of pills, they'll see that like you didn't take any and this hadn't happened up until this point. So they probably had no reason to think that someone would tamper with it. They're just like, oh, you didn't take any? Like, okay, we can return it and put it back on the shelf. Yeah. And... Before these recent theories, most of the talk of Johnson Johnson during this time is just praise for how quickly they responded and reacted. And it's literally called like a perfect public relations response. And I mean, even in like business textbooks today, they're like, this is an example of like the perfect response. And Johnson Johnson actually received several awards for their PR response to this incident. I mean, even if it was somebody with Johnson and Johnson, they don't represent the whole company and the company as a whole did act pretty well we can't really fault them for that even if one of your employees kind of went AWOL um so like I really feel like to blame them you would have to have some kind of evidence that they knew that that's what happened and they were covering it up but I personally just really don't feel like that's the case yeah and I mean especially if it's like in a distribution center and like one of the cities of this whole I mean yeah there's no way like you could know and if they knew it would be more widespread I feel like you know if they were like yeah put cyanide pills in some of these who would do that to themselves (laughs) yeah right (laughs) especially when you're making more money than like all your competitors exactly so today the FBI still has this case open and a local investigation was recently turned over to the Arlington Heights Police Department because Arlington Heights is kind of where Adam Janice was and they kind of figured out there's a link so the case is still open they're still trying to investigate it but personally I'm very doubtful that we'll ever know for sure who did this unless it's a deathbed confession unless like anything like that like I just don't see it being solved (laughs) Yeah, agreed. And especially, like, with deathbed confessions, because, I mean, look at how many people confess to being D.B. Cooper on their deathbed. You know, mm-hmm. even with something like that, it's like, will we ever really know for sure? Because I'm sure this person doesn't have any proof that it was them, you know? Yeah. But it is just very sad. Um, it's kind of amazing how quick Tylenol rebounded after that. But Yeah. And, I mean, again, this was the early 80s, so I wonder how much nationwide news they had about it. Like, if people outside of this area really knew. Because, you know, like with the Green River Killer, I mean, he was killing a lot of women, but people outside of the Pacific Northwest, like, didn't know about it. So Yeah, it just wasn't publicized. It might have just been, like, you know, not covered up, but just not as, like, widely talked about. Yeah, it definitely wouldn't have received the kind of media attention that it would today because... We're just so tuned into media right now, you know? So it's like, if you don't happen to, like, watch the news or listen to the radio on a specific day that it's being covered, you know, whatever, like, you could miss something like this. Because, obviously, like, people nationwide were aware of it because Tylenol was removed from all the shelves. But if you're someone that's not, like, super into watching the news, like, maybe you don't take Tylenol often or in those few weeks that it was off the shelves, like, you just never would have noticed. Yeah, definitely. It's just... A crazy, crazy story. Um, mostly happy ending. I mean, people died, but more people didn't die. <laughs> At least 
measures were put into place to keep this from happening again. And it's honestly amazing, like, how quickly those laws were initiated that, like, okay, well, you know, just a few days later in Chicago, they're like, we have to have tamper-proof packaging on all of this. And then within the next year, like, it's now a federal offense to tamper with product. Like, it happened so quickly. And that's honestly, like, fascinating to me that there was such the the rapid response that there was. Um, And then as I mentioned, you know, several times throughout this episode, this case is so interesting to me because I feel like if things hadn't fell exactly the way they did, this would have gone on for much longer and many more people would have died because there were just so many components that like had to happen for them to like put it together so quickly. Yeah. And like, if this hadn't happened, I'm sure something in the future would have happened that would have, because, you know, we didn't really have like tamper-proof seals. Like, yeah, I feel like if this hadn't happened, something would have happened eventually because people suck. Um, yep. But if you really, really enjoyed this story and this case, um, we're doing a very similar story on Patreon about the Excedrin murders. So, ooh, we're talking about, we're going to ruin all medication for you. <laughs> Say hello to your headache forever. Um, but we're going to have a very special episode up soon. I'm not really sure. We don't really have a date set. We just kind of, you know, go with the flow here. At least I do. <laughs> I, I think... If I'm not mistaken, I think it'll come out around the time this one comes out. So if mm-hmm. it's not already up there, it should be up there within like a week or two. So yeah. either way, you should go on over to patreon.com slash caffeinated crimes so you can listen to that either right now or very soon because it ties in closely with this case and it's really fascinating, guys. Yeah, we'll try and have it released around the time this comes out so you can just jump on over to Patreon, send us a, yes. a little, you know, dime or two. A little bit more than that, but a little bit of money. Get some perks, get some episodes. Yep. All of that. You just a reminder, you get all of our bonus episodes with just the five dollar tier. So just five dollars a month, you get all of our bonus content. So yeah, definitely consider um heading on over there to subscribe. Um but before we get ahead of ourselves with where you can find us and all of that good stuff, Courtney, what is your perk of the week? Okay, my perk of the week is yesterday in Knoxville, it was sunny. And it was a little warm. Not, like, super warm. It was, like, 40s. <laughs> it was, like, low 40s. Um, not, not freezing. Not freezing. You could be outside for longer than, like, a minute and not want to die. Um, but so I was able to go and meet my best friend. And we had just a beer outside. And it was super nice just to get out of this apartment and be able to sit outside in the sunshine and get some vitamin D and just be a little happier. So I think we have some really nice weather coming up and I'm really excited because the seasonal depression is real. It's real. So that is my perk of the week. It's just sunnier weather that I cannot wait for and I'm just so excited for summer. (laughs) And it's definitely way more difficult this year because you can't really do things indoors. So before where it's like, okay, well we can meet up inside at a brewery or go do this indoors or whatever and it's like you know at least throughout the summer you could do things spaced out outdoors and now it's like well no now everyone's just really stuck yeah so Jacqueline what is your perk of the week so my perk of the week so yesterday um Andrew and I drove up to DC for just a short day trip it was very very cold um but we got some (laughs) delicious cookies so it's this bakery called I think it's Levain I'm not sure how to pronounce it Um, But I think it's like a New York-based cookie company that is now in D.C. 
but these cookies are like two inches thick and they're like crispy on the outside but they're like gooey and like melty on the inside and they're really delicious and that's that's all I got this week but it was a good perk of the week (laughs) (laughs) yeah you and Tiffany have been talking a lot about cookies (laughs) and I don't think I've told listeners I've told I know I've told you and Tiffany is I had a very um bad episode with cookies (laughs) where I had no self-control um recently when I bought cookies so my response to that is just I don't buy cookie dough anymore because if I don't have the cookie dough I can't make the cookies and I can't eat them all so I've been really wanting some cookies (laughs) but I've been trying to be good and I'm like nope if I buy it I will eat 12 cookies in one sitting (laughs) cookies are just too good I mean they're just and I love them like best when they're fresh out of the oven so usually I only cook as many as I'm gonna eat at that time but then sometimes I'm like oh well I'll cook some more and just have them later and then I eat them then and then later doesn't (laughs) happen because they're just too good when they're warm so yep yeah so cookies are my downfall sometimes (laughs) man I'm really excited to uh go eat lunch so I can eat one of those leftover cookies now though because I mean these things like these things are so massive that like I'm like eating them in like one fourth chunks because like they're like so big and Andrew and I got three of them so you know I think it's like 800 calories per cookie (laughs) like it's (laughs) insane (laughs) but yeah so if you guys want to talk to us about cookies or anything um, you can head on over to Instagram at Caffeinated Crimes Pod. You can find us on Twitter at Caff Crimes Pod. That's C A F F Crimes Pod. You can find us on Facebook at Caffeinated Crimes Podcast. Or you can email us at Caffeinated Crimes Pod at Gmail. Yeah, and don't forget if you want that Excedrin bonus episode, um, you can go to patreon.com slash caffeinated crimes and you get a lot of perks there a pin, a sticker, extra episodes, hangouts, QAs. Um, But if you're wanting a pin and sticker without spending the money, you can for free go give us an Apple review. And once we get to 50 of those, we're going to give a pin, a sticker, and a $10 gift card to the coffee shop of your choice out. Um, Just make sure you put some identifying information, message us. You guys know the drill. You hear me say this every week. So (laughs) in the meantime, go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime.